So Money episode 1136, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host, certified financial planner, Georgia Lee Hussey. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. It is Ask Farnoosh Friday. And joining me in a short moment will be my friend, certified financial planner and founder of Modernist Financial, Georgia Lee Hussey. We're going to help listeners with questions, everything from how to pivot into a career in personal finance, whether or not you can use health insurance as a bargaining chip when you're negotiating a salary. Also, a debate on who is responsible for the student loan crisis. George and I actually disagreed a little bit on this and so much more. Listen, it is piles and piles of snow from where I'm sitting. It is great. We had our first suburban snow here in New Jersey. The kids had a quote unquote snow day, which just basically means that your Zoom classes end a little bit early. (laughs) So sad. Remember when we were younger and a real snow day meant you could sleep in, you could play in the snow, no school. Now, I guess technology There's no need to have a snow day. You can just meet your teacher on the internet, but we're still enjoying it. The kids got out of school early, or my son did at least, and uh, they've been having hot chocolate and playing in the snow ever since, and we're going to make some pizzas. It's going to be a good time. Hashtag quarantine life, right? I want to head over to the iTunes section to pick our reviewer of the week. This is one of my favorite things to do all week, to go to the iTunes review section and feel good about myself. Today, we're going to say thank you to Wheelie1976, who on December 10th left a review saying that the podcast is a gold mine of financial advice. She says, I'm a single mom juggling a full-time career. I have four-year-old twins, so financial security is critical for me. Farnoosh covers so many different topics and has such depth of content that I'm able to tailor my podcast listening based on what I need to know right now. With Farnoosh's help, I'm on an amazing journey to financial empowerment. I review the list of episodes, I listen, even make notes, and then tackle that area of my financial life, be it paying down debt, planning for retirement, making real estate investments, or day-to-day budgeting. Thank you, Farnoosh, for helping me on my way to a brighter financial future. My goodness, four-year-old twins and dedicated to this podcast, I don't know how you do it all. Wheelie 1976, I wanna learn from you. Get in touch. Email me, farnooshatsomoneypodcast.com. You can also go to Instagram if you wish and direct message me there. I'm at farnoosh-tarabi on Instagram. And let me know you left the review and we will make a time to chat on the phone. Remember the phone? Just like the good old days. I want to spotlight a recent article that I wrote for Bloomberg on how to be charitable right now. I know a lot of us are looking to give back. Uh, the holidays are a very popular time to be helping others out as we should be. And right now, of course, with the recession and so many families impacted by the pandemic and the recession, unemployment levels where they are, people are curious, like how can I actually help 
individuals or households directly with rent, with food, with utilities, with childcare. And I wrote a piece on Bloomberg about some ways that you might be able to do this. Because, you know, normally during times of crisis, what do we do? We give money to the charities. And certainly, if that's what you want to do, you should. But some people, increasingly, more people want to give directly to families because it's faster and it can help them immediately, right, with the things that are immediate, like next month's rent or this month's rent and groceries or getting Christmas gifts for their kids. So if that is what you're interested in, I highly recommend you check out my Bloomberg article. It is behind a paywall. So I'm going to give you some of the insights right now on the podcast. The article is called How to Give Meaningfully, Directly and Fast. My first tip is around childcare. Remember, we did this recently uh, through the podcast. I gave out thousands of dollars to a few families this fall who were in dire need of either tutoring or childcare support because their kids were now not going to school because now they have Zoom school, but the parents still have to work and they can't afford childcare or they can't afford a tutor to help their kid not fall behind because as a parent of a kid who definitely does not excel in the Zoom learning situation, I know that a tutor or supplemental education is very, very important. My kid, Evan, he's six and a half. He has ADHD. Um, he's a whiz on the computer, but let me tell you, doesn't help his attention. Nope. <laughs> Not especially after six months of this. He is almost too good at the computer now. So he is absolutely not listening to his teachers when they're trying to teach him math or English. And I'm there, or my husband's there, or our nanny is there helping him on the other side of that screen. And it's really, really hard, really, really hard. So I figured, look, we're a family with resources. It's hard for us. What if you're a family with no resources or very few resources and you're in this same predicament? So we put together a scholarship. I use a very simple Google form. I went on Instagram. I got over 50 applicants. We helped people immediately. And even my friends contributed to the fund. So social media works. If you're interested in helping a family with childcare, go on social media, express that you want to do this. Or I would also recommend calling your local YMCA. A lot of local YMCAs are opening up their doors to provide kids with a safe and structured environment to learn while their parents are working. It's not free. Usually parents have to pay for this. It's cheaper than daycare. It's cheaper than a private tutor, but it's still money. Maybe you could pay the Y to sponsor a family. So that's childcare. Other things like food and rent, Kickstarter and GoFundMe are now increasingly becoming the go-to sites for raising money for people that need immediate money for rent, food, other necessities. GoFundMe itself is raising money for people through what it calls its basic necessities cause fund. You can contribute to that. And if you're just kind of going blind on these sites, not knowing where to start, I recommend clicking on emergency or medical categories where you can be led to people's profile pages where they're asking for money uh, tied to these uh, issues. Donating to organizations, giving directly is another way to go about it. A quick way to get money in people's hands, givedirectly.org is devoted to giving cash to people. They run global programs so you can help people all over the world. And they have a COVID-19 response program that's giving cash relief to those who've lost their jobs and need quick help with all the things that I've mentioned. There's also the 1K Project, similar mission, helping families straight away. You can sponsor a household that's been hurt by the pandemic and the commitment there is $1,000 for three months. 
And then I also want to highlight the National Domestic Workers Alliance. We have a nanny. She's a member. She highly recommends NDWA. They do incredible work helping home care workers, nannies, house cleaners who are facing financial hardship right now. They do have emergency assistance. They give out gift cards, cash gift cards. So this is just a short list. The article was really meant to inspire the listener to go and figure out a way to immediately help someone right now. If we all did this, imagine if we all helped someone else right now, today, tomorrow, this weekend. Can you imagine what a better holiday it would be? What a better end to 2020 it could be? There's still time, right? It's only December 18th. There's 12 more days till the end of 2020. Let's make it a really, really good one. I've been running a couple of bonus episodes on the podcast this month. In case you missed it, I would really love for you to go and check out my two bonus episodes from this Thursday and last Thursday, all about student loans. I went on Instagram and asked you for your biggest questions about paying down your debt. And I answered them on those two episodes brought to us by TIAA. It was done in partnership with them. They've done an incredible survey looking at how people are handling their student debt. And they've also, you'll hear on the episodes, uh, introduced a new program with many of their nonprofit clients to help their workers pay off their federal student loans in a much easier, simpler way and a less expensive way. So tune in, especially if you work in the nonprofit sector, if you work in the education sector where TIAA is deeply involved, um, it's really, really timely, important stuff. All right, ready to hit the mailbag. I've brought back my friend, Georgia Lee Hussey, who is the founder of Modernist Financial, one of my favorite CFPs on the planet. Georgia Lee Hussey, welcome to So Money, my friend. How are you as we're about to ring out 2020? I am very excited to see 2020 in my rearview mirror. I feel like it's been good. It's taught me a lot. It's time for it to go home. Now, you were just telling me before we were recording that this is the busiest time of year for you. Why is that? Well, 1231 of any year is the um, ending date of any last minute tax planning changes, referral, um, deferrals and 401k plans. Roth conversions, charitable donations, there's a lot of activity around tax planning. Um, and so we are try, we try and organize it so it doesn't become a um, sprint at the end of the year. But of course, best laid plans in 2020 often go awry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, yeah, we're just trying to do a lot of great planning for folks. Um, you know, a lot of folks have businesses that didn't do very well this year, but that's a great opportunity for a Roth conversion at a very low tax rate. So there's um, there's some great last minute things we can do to make their 80-year-old selves very happy. Yeah. Like what are some other benefits to not doing so well financially one year that you can either write off or that you can now, uh, like to your point, you know, benefit more from a Roth IRA where you don't, where you pay the taxes basically today versus in retirement? Yeah, there's um, quite a few ways of thinking about it. I always try and and reframe the a, a lower income year as an opportunity to think about these planning planning options that may generally just be completely off the table in a higher income year. So Roth conversions are the most obvious. So let's say somebody owns a business and they have a hundred thousand dollar loss this year. Not great, but they've got the cash flow to take care of things. It's just how the how the books look. Um, what we would end up doing, let's say they also have a $100,000 traditional IRA. Well, we would convert that 
and potentially pay very minimal tax, if anything, on making that conversion happen. And the beauty and glory of a Roth IRA to a financial planner like myself is that that money then grows tax-free forever, or as long as Congress lets it. So we, um, I love tax-exempt assets for clients, and that's a great opportunity. Um, some folks were making decisions to not do things like, let's say they wanted to make a large gift um, to a uh, nonprofit. We might say, well, you're not going to get a lot of benefit out of it this year. So maybe make it on January 2nd of next year, um, where the timing might not make a lot of difference to the organization. A lot of our clients this year also for charitable giving made a decision to give a lot of money for political causes. They don't get a tax deduction, but they were fine with that for the reason mm -hmm. that it was supportive of the values and their future for their children. But also um, it, it didn't really need to play into their tax planning. Well, I love that. It's so nice to learn something new on the show. I didn't really think of it in that way, where if you didn't have the best income year, maybe there are some ways to um, rejig your financial plan to uh, to kind of align more with where you landed financially in 2020 and where you hope to be in 2021. Are you sensing more optimism from your clients and frankly, yourself in the new year? <laughs> yes. I mean, I, all of our clients are certainly on the left, if not um, defined define themselves as progressive politically. And so there's a great sigh of relief that happened sometime in mid-November. Um, you know, certainly still worried uh, because the systemic issues aren't gone, um, whether it's racism, sexism, classism, regressive tax structures, et cetera. But there's a sense of like, okay, we got a little win. Now it's about what can we do in 2021 to reaffirm democracy, to engage mm -hmm. in bridge building with folks that maybe we don't necessarily agree with, but we may actually share more in common with than we thought. So mm -hmm. I think there is a desire to rest for a moment and then gather ourselves for, for meaningful and I think also reasonable action in 2021. We're tired. This is this is emotionally exhausting, no matter how many resources you have right now in 2020 with COVID and unemployment and racial justice movements. And I think refilling the refilling the tank <laughs> emotionally, mm -hmm. physically rest is very important as we transition. Yes. And listeners, you will notice that towards the end of the year, as we are now, what is it, December 18th, the next two weeks are going to be recaps of what we learned in 2020. So I'm going to be airing snippets of really important conversations that we had all year. One, to give myself a break from having to provi provide new interviews. Also, I know a lot of us do take the break over the last two weeks of the year. So I want to save the newer stuff for the new year, um, but also give 2020 a chance to not because I want it to repeat, uh, but because there were a lot of learnings on So Money this year that I think deserve re-spotlighting. So stay tuned for that. As you know, this is something that I do every year, these So Money recaps. Um, and then this is our last official Ask Farnoosh of the year. The next two are going to be replays um, of some of the more popular ones from 2020. So you're my last live guest of 2020, Georgia. I am honored. I am very I honored. couldn't think of a better person. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's always fun to talk about money with you, Farnoosh. Thank you. Likewise. Wait, hold on. My daughter is 
What's that? You're going to Simone's. Okay. Okay. Thanks for the, my daughter likes to be the, uh, she's the newsmaker in the house. She likes to tell her. She's coming to tell me something that does not affect my life, but she thinks it's important. She just told me that her brother is going to go to his tutors <laughs> right now. So I know because I paid the tutor and I've scheduled it, but thanks for letting me know again that what's going on. All right, let's help out some listeners here. Abby, Aaron, Kristen, Chloe, all these questions came through the gram, Instagram. Very easy to send me a question, direct message me there, follow me, then direct message me. That's where I check first for all the questions. There's also the Ask Farnoosh button on the So Many Podcast website. But let's start with Aaron because we just kind of stopped, we were just talking about the election and changes that are afoot. And she has a question related to saving for college and what the the new administration might imply for college savers. So she says, Hey, Farnoosh, I've been listening to your podcasts and love them. I read your recent article about potential money changes with the Biden administration on nextadvisor.com. And it got me thinking, should we open a 529 plan for our one-month-old daughter? Is this the best investment plan for her? Or do you have another recommendation? We plan to open a standard savings account and then another account that will grow. And right now we can only afford putting at most 50 to to $100 in her account each month because my husband got permanently laid off in a specialized field aircraft maintenance. So I want to try and maximize this money. I'm definitely grateful to be able to support my family on my income. And I feel empowered by your women making more posts. All right, Aaron. Well, thanks so much for being a part of the community. And this is a great question. It, it suggests that you're a planner with a capital P already with your daughter at one month of age, looking ahead and wanting to think about her future and plan for that. Georgia, you and I were talking before we went live. We kind of were reviewing a bit of these questions. And I did write an article about what the Biden administration plans to do. Notice I plans, big quotation marks. There's a lot of like hypotheses and presentations and plans, but what will actually happen will look a little different. (laughs) That said, um, we can be hopeful. And part of the administration's plan is to make college in general more affordable, including those with student loan debt to make their burden less over the coming years. There's there's talk of potentially expanding upon existing programs like the PSLF program, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. There's talk of expanding on the income-based repayment plan. These are all um, Obama-Biden era plans that were implemented in the last recession. So he's very familiar with these, with these programs and his goal is to just make those um, more applicable, wider, more far-reaching and, and ultimately make it easier for people who have debt burden to pay off their debts. I didn't read anything about, you know, what he's going to do that might change in 18 years, right? Because that's really what Aaron's situation is, Georgia, which is where we sort of paused. We were like, well, if she had a kid that was about to go to college, maybe there's something to talk about here as far as the Biden administration's impact on college affordability and student loan access. But 18 years from now, I mean, it's anyone's guess. Absolutely. I would say that a 529 plan, as it exists at this moment and the way it's treated um, by the IRS due to congressional direction, the account itself is a a thing of beauty to a financial planner. And that's because you put money in 
often after tax, but depending on what state you're in, you might get a small tax credit or um, a deduction for contributing to the state 529 plan. And then it grows tax-free until you take it out for college. And that is a glorious thing when you add that to compound growth. And so I would always recommend a 529 unless there's a significant pile of money somewhere else. Like there's a grandparent who said, we're going to pay for college. Um, Even then, I might still do a little saving on the side just in case their situation changes. So if you really can't afford to put away $50 to $100 a month, I would highly recommend it because starting now at her little one month year old age is um, is a, a wondrous thing when you think about the compounding impact of that that regular savings. It can change. It has recently expanded under the Trump administration to allow for parents to take out up to $10,000 a year for primary and secondary education costs. Right. So it's not to say that it can't evolve or go away. But I think it's it's a mainstay. It's, it's to your point, like it has so many benefits. We've only seen it expand in its potential. Um, and education, I mean, I really do hope that it becomes more affordable and you won't have a day where you have to put so much into the 529 plan. But um, I think starting with 50 bucks a month now, you won't regret it. Right. My one caveat to this would be, and it seems like this might not be a concern for you, Erin, because you are clearly a planner, um, but I would just make sure that you're not saving for your 529 ahead of your own retirement because compound growth for your retirement is more important than your child's education costs. Uh, because the last thing that you want to do, and this is a very common thing I see with, with new parents, is a desire to pay for education. But the last thing you want is to put a child through college, but then you have to ask them to support you in retirement. Um, That compound growth is your dear friend as well. So even if you want to put a smaller amount into her 529, let's say $100 a month you have, 75 to retirement, 25 to her 529. Um, it can make a huge impact, especially in these years where your father, where your husband is laid off at the moment. Um, those Roth IRAs also tax free growth forever. So, um, and there are some caveats on Roth IRAs for education also. So, um, I would just say take care of yourself first and then take care of, of the kids. Um, that's my only idea. Thanks for bringing that up. And you're right about that. There have been so many studies that show parents sacrificing their own retirement savings to help their children go to college. But we really appreciate the question. And um, your daughter is lucky, Erin, to have you a mom who's so you know forward thinking. Abby has a question and it's, well, first she says, I've been listening for two and a half years and the show has guided her as she started her career and eased into adulthood. I like hearing that, that adulthood wasn't this like crash course. She says, thanks to you, I now enjoy the personal finance field so much that I'm exploring ways to pursue it more professionally down the road. Do you have any advice for exploring the personal finance space as a career? Well, do we ever, Abby, because I've got Georgia Lee Hesse on the line has built an entire career <laughs> helping people with their money. You know what I thought would be cool is you could talk about kind of like the beginnings of your path, Georgia. Yeah. And I can talk about mine because we, you're the professional with that's licensed, that has clients, that has a business. And I'm... I'm not doing that, but I am still, I'm still in the space. I'm a peer, but I didn't have, I didn't go your route. I did a different path. Right. Yeah. And I think it's important to consider that there are so many paths into the industry. It's an ecosystem of professionals that are helping guide our culture at large and making smart financial decisions. And if we didn't have good journalists, we'd be 
it'd be a tough, a tough spot. Um, so I'm always grateful for folks like you furnish that are saying such smart, interesting, empathetic things about money. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I was actually trained as an artist. So I'm a sculptor and a writer by training. And, uh, I basically bought a house I couldn't afford in what we came to understand to be the subprime mortgage crisis, realized I didn't know jack about money and nobody I knew knew anything about money, even though, most of my friends were very successful creatives. And so that's why I basically sold that house um, and bought an education to become a certified financial planner, which is what I do. Um, and I would say it's a very satisfying career. I mean, I often get out of a meeting. I'm like, is there a better job? I get to talk about what's meaningful to people, their their dreams and their vision. I get to think about really, for me, which are fun, complex systems like tax planning, estate planning, investments, et cetera, and put all these qualitative and quantitative um, pieces together to create an actionable plan and a support system for folks to implement these visions for themselves. So I love it. It's super fun. We have a resources page on our website, modernistfinancial.com referrals and resources. And we say basically who we think people should hire as a planner, also very valuable for looking at who you might want to work for as a planner. Mm -hmm. Um, So looking at fee only firms, et cetera. Then you can, um, you know, you can become a CFA, which is doing more the technical analysis for investment management and portfolios. Really, um, like all things finance, there is a significant lack of diversity in these positions. So I would highly recommend looking at that as well. And then there's really interesting subsidiary jobs like financial therapy, philanthropy consulting, financial literacy nonprofits that are really doing work and folks who are deeply underserviced by the industry. So the, all those folks are supportive of the work that that we do at Modernist. I think one thing that's lacking, and you said it, uh, Georgia, is the empathy component to financial planning. And you provide that so well, but it's still something that I think the industry is lacking in, in totality and overall. Um, we know so much now about how our emotions and our behavior play a role in our financial health and our financial abilities. It's less about what is your Harvard degree or, you know, are you good at math? It's money is not math. Money is emotions. You know, (laughs) math is just, you know, it's a technicality to it all, but it's really, you know, your emotions and the discipline. And I was just talking to Morgan Housel. Uh, We aired his podcast recently about uh, his book called The Psychology of Money. Mm. And we were just, you know, he's so deep into this world of the psychology of money. But one thing that was sort of interesting looking ahead is like the industry really needs to wake up to this fact a lot more than it has. And so an opportunity, I think, for someone like Abby, who's looking at this as a, a future for herself, a career path, is how can you stand out then as somebody who is providing not just financial advice, like here's how to open up a bank account, here's how to invest, but to really understand human nature and human behavior and marry those two. So whether it is becoming a financial therapist or just an advisor that leads with the understanding that money is emotional and guides her clients in that way, there's a huge opportunity for, I guess, like they would say in the medical field, like that bedside manner, you know, and that is sort of lacking a lot in the financial industry is like really talking to the person and not the portfolio all the time. And so 
Abby, financial therapy, money coaching. You can get certified as a money coach where you're really just working with people about you know, unpacking their relationship with money and their money memories and their values around money. A good financial advisor does that too. But if sometimes people just want that to begin with for the first couple of years, because it's just for them, money has been such a point of stress in their lives. And in, in my line of work, you know, as more of um, a journalist, a, a writer, a speaker, an influencer. I don't like that term, but that's what they call it these days. I, you know, I was an influencer before they had a name for it, I guess, because <laughs> that's what authors are. And that's what speakers are, I guess. They influence people's minds. They're thought leaders. So there's that path too, if you're more interested in the storytelling, in the not working one-on-one with people, but maybe speaking to larger audiences more generally, more broadly. There's also that. And the way I did it was I just went to journalism school. Not just, it was a lot of work, but went to journalism school, started working in media, covering business and finance and Wall Street and all of that before kind of distilling it all into what I do now, which is helping mainly women, mainly professional women with their money. Although I think if you're listening to the podcast and you don't identify as that, I'm not surprised. There's, I have a lot of people who come to the show from all walks of life, but you know, my last book was about female breadwinners. So that's, that's my, uh, my flavor of the, of the, of the decade apparently is working with, uh, or talking more specifically to ambitious women, but you know, it, it's, it's a journey. And like the beauty of the, of the journey is that if you build an audience, they grow with you. You can change direction. You can learn a lot from your audience. It's a beautiful career path. Because when you talk about money, Georgia, you're not talking about money. You're talking about life. Yep. And that's the thing about working in finance is it to me, I'm a very political person and it is a truly radical act to bring intention, values, and especially underrepresented voices to the world of finance. We have been intentionally disenfranchised from wealth building for centuries and millennia. And to say, no, we have not only agency here, we have wisdom and we have expertise. That has the potential to have ripple effects for generations. Oh my gosh, you gave me chills. Okay, so Abby, you have to do this. Georgia and I are going to be rooting for you and everybody else. You know, you just don't know what's on the other side of your podcast, Georgia. You put out a show and you're like, yeah, people will like, you know, remember to save and invest. And then in this case, we have a woman who's completely changing the trajectory of her career. She got she caught the bug, the personal finance industry bug. Love it. Thank you so much, Abby. And um, have a great weekend. Thanks for your question. Next up is Kristen. She made me think, Kristen, it's not really so much a question, but like she's throwing a thought out there. I just thought it'd be interesting for you and I to, you know, dissect it a little bit. But she says, why are we all taking a reactive approach to student loans instead of educating young adults on money and how those student loans will affect their future? Student loans are crushing us. And yet all that was shown to us going into college was the dining halls, the clubs, the programs. Not that when you graduate, you're going to have to deal with the mental burden of student loans and then you're going to struggle to buy a house or go on a vacation. Whose responsibility is this? Is it parents? Is it guidance counselors? She says, it's just an interesting topic that I think should be debated. I agree. I I don't think it's a one 
person's job or one solution. I think that this is something that is going to require, there are a lot of stakeholders, right? There's the student, there's the families, there are the colleges, there's the country. You know, I was just talking to my husband last night, Georgia, about, he just flat out asked me over dinner. He's like, so do you think that student loans should be, you know, deleted? Like if you have a student loan, like you just don't have to pay for it, which is something that's on the table. You know, it's something that's being debated right now. And I said, I, part of me says, yes, whatever you do, there are going to be unhappy people. Like there are going to be people who had student loan debt and just paid it off. And then there's going to be this new rule that's like, oh, everyone who has a student loan, just put it in the trash. And so it's going to be unfair to those who struggled through that debt process and maybe even came on the other side of it triumphant and now are feeling like, why deny benefit from this? And then there are people who can afford to pay down their student loans. Mm-hmm. And for this is people who absolutely cannot. So it's like, how do you decide? Maybe you just have to just throw it all away. But then we got more into talking about it. And really what we were really talking about at that point was just, you know, it's everyone's responsibility to fix this problem. And I think that we forget that colleges sometimes are the culprits because who was raising the price for college the last 15 years at three times the pace of inflation? Colleges were. I don't, I disagree with you on this, Farnoosh. I, what has, from what I've seen, what has raised the price for college has been a lowering of um, funding of college from the federal and state levels. So there, this money was getting um, allocated not to the consumer, in this case, the the student, but it was getting paid for by the state. But the states are getting um, pushed, are getting squeezed by increasing pension costs. And I think there is a, I agree with you, there's a real, there's a, a need to understand the system beyond just the schools and the students that funds college. Um, because I think there's a, you know, the, the, so thinking about inflation rate, inflation rate on state schools is much higher and um, more aggressive than it has been on private schools um, because state schools have, have been, um, have been funded by the, by the state governments, but now the state governments can't afford to do so anymore. So the students are having to pick up the, the difference. Whereas private colleges have had to build in um, foundations and endowments in order to make sure they can continue to exist. Mm-hmm. So I think it's actually a systemic issue of saying, do we actually value education? And are we willing to pay the taxes to pay for it? I don't know. Well, I agree. I agree that there is responsibility from the federal government, but you know, I I sit on a board at a college and a public school, and I see and I and forever this school, Penn State, despite that it's uh, branded as a state school, only a fraction of its money, to your point, comes from the government of, of mm-hmm. the state of Pennsylvania, and most of the money comes from endowment. And we always would joke that like, uh, you know, Cornell University gets more money from New York than Penn State gets from Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but that was at one point the thing that people were were, were tossing around, like, isn't this ironic? Um, so it's it's a messed up system in terms of funding for sure. But I also have heard anecdotally, you know, some presidents of universities raising prices. Why? Because they know someone will pay it. And you know who was paying all the tuition? The foreign students, the international yeah, students. That's true. That they didn't hesitate to increase tuition because they knew they were still going to have 
100% enrollment. And I think that there is something there to investigate. Now, if you're raising tuition and you're enrolling all these students who either pay full ride or or rather they, they pay fully or they kick out student loans, are you graduating them with a job? Mm. I think some some colleges should disappear. That's my opinion. And, and then now we're getting into sort of like, you know, the business of college and too big to fail. Mm, no, you're not. Like, I think that you should fail if you're not actually delivering the things that you promise, like completing a four-year education in four years. Well, um, I, I think I have to disagree with you, maybe. Well, I have a, I have a different perspective in that, you know what I don't want to hire in my business is somebody who has a finance degree. Because I've seen the structure of those educations. And I would much rather hire a liberal arts student who doesn't know what the hell they're going to do out of college excuse me, who doesn't know what they're going to do out of college um, because they have been forced to think both empathetically and cross across ideas. And so they are actually a more capable hire for me as an employer than somebody who comes straight out of finance. And so I think there needs to be a value placed on comprehensive problem solving project management, independent thinking that is beyond just having a particular job path, um, because that job path is very likely to shift in the next 10 years. Um, True. As, as industries change. So I'm a little... But can we agree? Don't make the sociology major take out a $200,000 loan. Oh, great. That is a million percent. No. Yeah. Maybe make the finance student take out a $100,000 loan because she's going to get a job paying her $100,000 when she, you know, in a couple of years, if not right away. So I think there's, so yeah, I think I'm still sticking to my beliefs here that I think colleges are responsible somewhat in this mess. But yeah, it's so, but I think we're, we're sort of like on the same team that we think it's a lot of people's problems to fix. Yes, exactly. And and the education has to happen too. Who's responsible for educating college students? Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody, colleges should and are putting together literacy programs for their students and the lenders should too. Like if you're 18 and you're taking out $80,000 in private student debt, yeah. maybe the bank should let you know what's what's come and do yeah. and remind you and all the reinforcements because we know college students and it's just, you know, you get busy, you forget. Right. And I do <laughs> think there is a cultural story about debt that I find a little worrisome around student loans because sometimes people will come to me with a great deal of angst about their student loan. And then I'll actually look at the details of it and it's fine. You know, it's $30,000, $40,000 and at 5% interest. I'm like, it's cool. Leave it alone. Just pay it off slowly. And um, there's a desire to get rid of student loans that I don't know if it's, um, it feels very, um, again, going back to this money is emotional. It feels like this emotional perspective that is sort of a gestalt at the moment that maybe um, it's about understanding. I don't think we people should have $100,000 of debt, but I think a little skin in the game is yeah. important. I don't want to, I don't actually want to get rid of everybody's debt. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think having some acknowledgement that education is expensive because it involves individual people talking to individual people to develop human capital. Um 
So it's such, I have so much hope in this area because people are talking about it so much. And maybe we can come up with a a path forward that produces more value, more efficiency, but also more meaning and impact for the students. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. There's a debate. Kristen, are you happy? Are you happy with? No, I really appreciate the question. And I think that's why she asked it, because clearly there's not, you know, it's not, there's not really a clear path, but it's important to keep to keep chewing on it. Okay. And last but not least, a question from our friend Chloe, where she says, Hey, Farnoosh, uh, my husband is 34. He was a veteran of the service industry with a degree in a science field. When COVID started closing down restaurants, he was permanently laid off with no bright prospects in the bartending industry. As the pandemic continues, he's used this time to pursue other avenues of generating income. Currently, he's working on a few computer programming projects as a private contractor for two companies, but there are currently no benefits or retirement accounts offered in his current situation. One company is talking about bringing him on as a full-time salaried employee with benefits. He has no debt, no retirement savings, and is currently on my awesome federal health insurance, um, (laughs) which is deducted from our paycheck uh, every month. We have virtually no experience negotiating, and we're expecting that the salary he'll be offered will be low. I was wondering if there is any way that we can use my health insurance as a bargaining chip in that he will stay on my insurance and elect to not take it when offered from his company. Any tips? Well, that's creative. Mm -hmm. Saying to the new employer, the husband's potential new employer, I will take a pass on the company benefits because I'm on my wife's insurance. Um, So maybe pay me a little bit more. Yeah. And it's pretty common. I had this come up recently when I was hiring last year and my HR um, consultant told me that it's pretty standard to offer a $5,000 salary credit. Now that's dependent on how much the company themselves contributes to health insurance. Um, At Modernist, we've got like a very, we're very aggressively kind or like generous in our, in our benefits. So that's what we ended up doing. Um, So I would use that number as a starting point if they're paying three to $400 a month for towards uh, health insurance. Maybe even more. Mm -hmm. Health insurance is expensive. Yeah. I think that's a good bargaining chip. You know, just the caution, the risk there, of course, is that if for any reason she loses her health plan, he doesn't have maybe an option to go on his companies right away that would have to get renegotiated. It's just something that you need to make sure you kind of imagine all of the worst case scenarios mm-hmm. before you... Because health insurance, again, not again, we haven't talked about it yet on the show, but I feel like I talk about it all the time in real life. I just feel like it's so dumb that it's tied to your employer. Oh, so dumb. <laughs> why? It's ridiculous. It's so dumb. Can we all agree on that at least? It's not a political thing. It's just like, why should that happen? Why should your ability to get a medical checkup so that you can survive be tied to your employer yeah. providing that? And not even like to say that even if you have a job, you still might not get the health insurance. So it's not even tied to you having a job. It's tied to having an employer who has the ability to give this to you as a benefit. Exactly. It's pretty screwed up. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Let's um, end on a positive note. What are your plans for the end of the year? I mean, because everyone's New Year's and Christmas and Hanukkah plans got disrupted, right? Like I'm basically just home for the next foreseeable 
weeks and months. And yeah, so we, I normally throw a big New Year's Day brunch because um, my uh, background is in from the South and that's generally when you celebrate New Year's. And um, so I think a bunch of my friends and I are each going to make, like I'll make Hop and John and somebody else will make cornbread and we're all going to drop off one Ew. element of the meal and then have a Zoom brunch together. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's going to be sweet. I might do that. That sounds fun. I have some friends and my brother in Brooklyn. So that might be something that we'll do too. Thanks for the idea. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, like I said, no better way to think of ending the new year. You've been such a support system for this podcast mm. um, all year and the years before that. And um, it had been a while since we spoke. So I'm glad that we got to squeeze this in before we uh, we finish the year and I'll see you back here in the new year in 2021. I'm excited. Thank you, Farnoosh. Have a wonderful new year. Thanks so much. Bye. And everybody else listening, thanks so much for tuning in. Promise the next two weeks are going to be good. They won't be brand new episodes, but they're going to be good in case you are wanting to catch up on some of the hot episodes of 2020. I'm going to package some really nice episodes for you and I'll see you back here live in 2021. Refreshed. Have a good weekend. I hope it's so money. 